0: And last week we began chapter 12, which offers us a theological explanation why the seven churches of Asia Minor can expect to be persecuted. And this section from chapter 12 to like chapter 14 and verse 13 is what we call an interlude. It doesn't uh, progress the story along chronological lines, but what it does is explains the story. Uh, John has told his churches to get ready for persecution. Now he's going to explain why they need to get ready for persecution. And we can summarize that answer uh, with one sentiment. Satan is as angry as a hornet. And there are two reasons. Number one, last week we saw he came to destroy Christ and he couldn't succeed. So he's angry. And he turns his attention to to the woman, to the church, to the believing Jews. And the second reason is that from last week we discovered he was cast out of heaven. And he knows his days are numbered, so he's going to wreak havoc upon the church as much as he can. He's going on a rampage. So today we're going to pick up at chapter 12 and verse 13. And it says this. This is sort of a summary statement. Now when the dragon, and we know from last week that's the devil, saw that he had been cast to the earth. He persecuted the woman that would be Israel and mainly believing Jews. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the man child. So this is a summary statement. And then the next statement says verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of eagle, of an eagle. Here's the reason she was given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Now, remember, this is all symbols. Uh, The church isn't literally given two wings of an eagle, but this language should sound familiar to you. And it sounds familiar to you because this is what God did for Israel when Pharaoh was pursuing her uh, to the edge of the Red Sea. God said, I bore you up on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. So just as he in a sense, bore Israel up on eagles' wings, to speak metaphorically, so he's done the same thing to the church. And it says in verse 14 uh, that she might fly in the wilderness to her place. Now, what is that place that God brought the church? Well, where did God bring Israel? If you look uh, uh, back in the Old Testament, God took Israel through the Red Sea into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And that's where she met God, at Mount Sinai. And now God's describing another time, in this case with the church, uh, where he delivers those people. So it says to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So uh, what is this describing? Well, this is probably describing... Israel, uh, the believing Jews, uh, being protected by God for three and a half years during the Jewish War. Now, remember, last week we talked about the Jewish War. The Jewish War started in 66. That's when Israel decided they wanted independence, so they declared themselves free from Rome. And Rome said, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, free." So there was a war that pursued that lasted three and a half years. And the believing Jews, which would be Christians, refused to fight in the war. So they fled across the wilderness. And we know this, they fled into Jordan to a place called Pella, which today is called Petra. And in the clefts of those rocks, in that city within this rock boundaries, the church stayed there and she was protected from Rome. And the other Jews, the unbelieving Jews, were so angry at the believing Jews that Christians, Jewish Christians, and non-Jewish Christians split. And there's been a fight between Judaism and Christianity ever since. So this is probably what uh, John is describing in his vision. So look what it says in verse 17. So here we have these believing Christians, these Jewish Christians, protected. So the serpent, verse 15, in light of that... Spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So, this is what we're going to call a satanic tsunami. Now, I want you to notice something. The dragon is now a serpent. Now, this is all a vision. This is not literal. The devil's not literally a serpent, is he? He's not literally a mythological dragon. But in his vision, the church is protected for three and a half years. Only for a limited amount of time is she protected. The persecution in John's time hasn't even started. But then he sees in his vision, now these are all symbols, a slimy snake. Now think about this, I want you to get the picture. I want you to see the vision in your mind. A snake, and the snake opens his mouth and guess what comes out? Blood of water like a tsunami. Coming after a woman. Going to catch up with her. Now, you just saw a tsunami. You saw what happened. Came up on shore and what did it do? It pursued all the people as they were running away. Caught up with them, didn't it? Well, this is what John sees in his vision. Now, is it literally a snake? Well, in his vision he sees a snake, but it's not literally a snake. It's the devil, isn't it? And this is simply a way of saying the devil doesn't give up. Even though the church has been protected for a while, he continues to pursue the church. But, verse 16, in his vision, John sees this. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth. Did you know the earth had a mouth? You've seen the globe, haven't you? The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So, his pursuit of the woman is thwarted. Now, this is again, John, using imagery that you have in the Old Testament. Because remember, uh, there was a rebellion in Israel after it left Egypt, after it escaped Pharaoh, but the Satan wasn't finished. He wanted to get Israel back under his power, and he led a rebellion. Remember Korah? Remember the story of Korah? And what happened? He rebelled when Moses was up on the mountain. Moses comes down and the earth opens up. And it swallows Korah and all his revolutionaries. So, this simply means that Satan continued to pursue the woman, but he was not successful at this point. Now we come to this key verse, verse 17. And as a result, look at this. The dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. So even though he was not successful the first time, she was protected. Even though he's not successful the second time, when you don't succeed, try, try again. So he comes after her offspring. Well, if I said your offspring, what would I be talking about? Oh, your children. So this is now a second generation of Christians. These are the Christians that are birthed out of the first group of Christians. And this could include Gentile Christians. It could include second generation Christians. But he doesn't give up and he goes to make war with her offspring, verse 17. So while she's spared for a time, she's not safe. And he doesn't give up. Okay, He pursues her. Now, when we say Satan pursues the church, what are we talking about? Uh, Satan's only one person. How does he pursue the church? Well, he's pursuing the church through the Roman Empire. He uses people. He uses people. Just like God uses people. If God's pursuing someone to get saved, He'll use Don to pursue that person. He'll use Buddy to pursue that person. He'll use you to pursue that person. He uses people. Satan's pursuing the church, and guess what he uses? People. He uses the Roman Empire. So it's Rome that fights against the church. And that's what John sees in his vision. But it's all symbolic. So uh, look what it says at the end of verse 17. Make war with her offspring? Which offspring? He makes war with those who keep the commandments of God. In other words, not those who just profess Christ, but those who live for Christ and God. And he pursues those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those who hold the testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord and do not bow the knee and say Caesar is Lord. Now that's what this whole book is about. And if you can get that, that Caesar wants to be called Lord because he's received power from Satan. Satan has basically chosen him to be the world leader at this point. And as a result, Rome is pursuing Christians who refuse to bow the knee. So what John is doing is warning the members of these seven churches to be prepared, even though persecution may not have yet started, and you've been protected so far for a limited amount of time, and Rome's attempts to destroy you have been thwarted, don't become complacent because Satan is not giving up. And you have to remain faithful. You have to keep the commandments of God and you have to hold that testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord at any cost. At any cost. Some will keep their testimony at any cost, and guess what others will do? They'll compromise. Because when the sword is put to their necks, or their family is threatened, they will make the sacrifice to Caesar. They will bow the knee to Caesar. And that was done through meals. You would go to these scheduled meals. And every scheduled meal, in the Roman Empire, you had to pour out a libation of wine in the name of Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. Everyone had to do that. And the Christians refused. And that's what cost them their lives. And so people would say, well, just to say Caesar's, Lord, I don't really believe it in my heart, you know. There's no reason to die over this thing. This is sort of ridiculous. I'll just say, I'll pour out the libation and say Caesar is Lord and I'll live. No, guess what? You've lost your soul. You've sided with Caesar. You've not said Jesus is Lord. You've said Caesar's Lord. And you can't serve what? You can't serve two masters. So he's just warning them of what's going to come. Now that sets the stage for chapter 13. So when we look at chapter 13, we're going to see it's divided into two sections. Section 1 covers verses 1 through 10. And that's the beast that comes out of the sea. That's what we're going to look at today. And then section 2, verses 11 to the end of the chapter, is the beast that comes out of the earth, or out of the land. Okay. So let's look at the beast that comes out of the sea. Beast number 1. Now here's what it says in verse 1 of chapter 13. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Some translation says, he stood on the sand of the sea. Meaning the devil. Anybody have a translation that says that? He stood on the sand of the sea. Which means the devil. Other translation says, John in his vision says, I stood on the sand of the sea. Doesn't really matter for the interpretation of the whole passage. but just want you to know there is a difference in translations. So I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, what John sees is a beast. Now, in his vision, he sees a beast. Uh, the beast represents something. We know from the book of Daniel, which is a book dealing with uh, similar things, that the beast represent empires. Remember, John, in Revelation, in Daniel, Daniel sees four beasts. They represent John sees a beast, and this represents the Roman Empire. Notice how he describes this beast. I want you to look at those last two first. Ten horns, which speaks of authority, and on the horns, ten crowns. Now, most likely, these ten horns represent ten kings. Rome ruled its empire through client kings. So, Rome controlled Palestine. Rome controlled uh, Asia Minor. Rome controlled all these different lands. And they controlled them through kings. That's why these horns have a crown on their head. It represents kings. Herod was one of these client kings. He was a Jew who Caesar declared to be a king. Augustus Caesar made him a king. And so he ruled things in Palestine on behalf of the Roman Empire. A compromising Jew. So, he sees these client kings throughout the empire. And then notice what else he sees there. He sees, in verse 1, that the empire has seven heads. Now, most likely, these represent the emperors. This is the man who's the head of state. He's in charge of everything. Seven heads. Seven emperors. Prior to Domitian, who's the emperor at the time of his writings, Rome had seven emperors. From Augustus Caesar, the time of Jesus' birth, up to Domitian, there were seven emperors. Domitian is the eighth. So he sees seven emperors, and they have totalitarian control over their world. And each one... Had a blasphemous name. Do you see that in verse 1? Each one had a blasphemous name. What in the world is that talking about? Each emperor declared himself to be God. That's blasphemy. The divine Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Augustus wasn't his name. His name wasn't Augustus. That wasn't like Allen Street. Street's my last name. His name wasn't Caesar Augustus. In fact, the word Caesar wasn't his name. (laughs) His real name was Octavian. But he takes on these titles. Divine Caesar. uh, Lord Caesar. uh, Son of God. Every Caesar took on a name like that. And so that's what I believe this is describing. Now look at verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. So now he's going to tell you what this kingdom is like. The beast, the kingdom of Rome, was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Again, where have we seen those symbols? Book of Daniel. And now what he's describing is a fourth beast. Rome. Three beasts. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and now John describes the fourth beast. And he said, he's like all three of them combined. Rome assumes the character of all the others. Rome has the power of all the other three combined. See, that's what a world leader does. That's what a a, a country that Controlling the world has more power than all the other kingdoms combined. Right now, what's the most powerful country in the world? All the United States. Who can fight against the United States and win? Nobody when it comes to military power. We've got more military power. We've got more nuclear power. We can destroy ten worlds. We have more, more power than all the other kingdoms combined. Rome is like Assyria and Babylon and Greece combined. That's what he sees in symbols. And then look what he says. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, so here is the power behind the throne is none other than the devil. Uh, This is a parody of what God does for Christ. God raises Christ from the dead and he gives him his power his throne, and he gives him great authority. And that's what Satan does for the world leaders and for the empires that he's behind. And so he throws all of his weight behind the Roman Empire, and he's the power behind the throne. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortal, mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. Now we come to something that's very interesting. And this is where uh, history is very important. Notice it says, one of his heads, one of Rome's heads, one of Rome's empire, emperors. Uh, it, w- it seemed like he was mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. Well, Rome has had seven emperors, and the one that most likely this is referring to is Nero. Uh, because uh, the story of Nero is a very interesting story. Uh, when Nero became the emperor back in the 60s, early 60s, he was a pretty good leader. and. The Roman Senate had great hopes for this man, that he was going to take the Roman Empire to to new heights. Uh, But what happened is that Nero's power went to his head. That happens the leader doesn't. And as a result, he began to do things that he shouldn't do. And we know that on July 19th in 64 AD, uh, Rome burned to the ground. Two-thirds of the city, the capital city of the empire, Rome, burned. burned to the ground. That was a fire that lasted nine days. Now, because of the structure of the buildings and because they didn't have a great fire department, that fire just went on for day after day after day and finally just burned itself out. And it was pretty much understood that Nero started that fire because there was a section of the city that mainly had tenement houses and apartments where the poorest of the poor lived. And Nero needed land. There wasn't a, a lot of open land that he could use. And he wanted land to build a magnificent palace for himself. Does this sound interesting? Yes? It sounds sort of like some of the people that we know. And he wanted to build a palace. Now, by the way, he ends up building this palace. And he, it's inside, just inside the, the doors of this palace, he builds a statue of himself that's 127 feet high inside the palace. That tells you how high the ceilings were in this palace. So he we think that he's he burns the city down. He figures we can get rid of those people. They don't mean anything. Uh, And so what happens is that they it catches on fire and it spreads and finally two-thirds of the room is burned. So his plan doesn't quite work out the way uh, he wants it to work out, but he builds the palace anyway and there's suspicious suspicion that Nero has started the fire, and so what he does to divert attention away from himself, he blames the Christians. And it's during this period of time that both Peter and Paul, the great apostles, are martyred in the city of Rome. May have been connected to this event, we're not sure of that. But anyway, uh, he blames it on the Christians... And uh, then he decides to go on, once he kills the few Christians, he decides to go on a killing spree. Start killing everybody. Everybody that he's suspicious of that thinks, that he thinks might want him out of office. And so he kills his wife. He kills his sons. kills his own kids. Kills relatives. Kills generals. Kills friends. Kills anybody because he's totally paranoid. And so finally, at some point, His army revolts against him. Just like the army turned against the leader of Egypt. When the army turns against you, guess what that means? That means you're out of there. (laughs) So uh, the Senate finally says, We want Nero arrested. So the Roman Senate arrests Nero. And they condemn him to die through flogging. But he escapes. And the theory is, no one knew this for sure, was that Nero committed suicide. But there was always a suspicion (laughs) that maybe he was alive. (laughs) Maybe he would come back uh, with a vengeance. And now an eighth emperor has arisen. His name is Domitian. And John, in his vision, says it's it's as if Nero has come back. We got a man who's going to go on a rampage. He's a crazy man. So I think that's what John's describing here in verse 3. One of his heads, it says, it's as if one of his heads, one of the emperors, as if it had been mortally wounded. It didn't say it was, it just looked as if. And his deadly wound was healed. Man, we thought we were rid of Nero, but guess what? He's back. He has a different name, but he's back. Yeah, and then look what it says uh, at the end of verse 3. And all the world marveled And followed the beast. Uh, The whole world uh, is committed to the Roman Empire and they are uh, worshiping the Emperor. Uh, The way you you showed loyalty to the Roman Empire was worshiping the Emperor as divine. And that was done through the meals like I told you. And so everybody in the Empire recognized the emperor was divine and was forced to worship the emperor and there were only a few sections of the Empire where that didn't happen and still they had to make sacrifices to the Emperor and so it says verse 4 they worship the dragon now wait a second in verse 3 they follow the beast probably through Emperor worship but in verse 4 they worship the dragon who's the dragon Satan now, they don't worship the dragon directly. There's not one person in the Roman Empire ever got down on their knees and said, Oh, holy Satan, we worship you. They were worshiping Satan indirectly by worshiping the empire, emperor. Because notice what it says. They worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. So by worshiping the beast, by worshiping the empire and the emperor, they were worshiping Satan, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? And the answer is, no one. No one can come up against this mighty power and expect to prevail. So, from this point on, a couple things happen. Number one is we see that the power behind the emperor, empire and the emperor is Satan. From this point on, Satan begins to recede into the background. Now, he's always there. He's always behind every world government that's ever existed. I don't care which one it is. He's always there, always whispering. They might not even realize that the thoughts they have are coming from Satan, but he's always there, always trying to wreak havoc. So he's going to recede into the background, but every time you hear Roman Empire, beast, emperor, you know Satan's right there on the scene as well. For example, if I said, Nazi Germany, Hitler, you would say Satan. Satan. If I said Libya, Gaddafi, you'd say, if I said Cuba, if I said United States. (laughs) See, don't think that we're exempt. In fact, I will tell you something, Rome from the ordinary person's viewpoint, not the Christian, not the Jews, but from the ordinary person's viewpoint, it was a great place to live. Uh, they had the Greco-Roman culture, which was the basis of our culture in America. And it was a wonderful place to live if you were on the inside and you were, you were a Roman citizen. But if you were not a Roman citizen, if you were... One of the countries they took over, it wasn't such a nice place for you to live. So now we go to the activities of the beast. Now look at verse 5. And he was given a mouth. Now when you see beast, you have to think empire, but you also have to think of the emperor who runs the empire. He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemous blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months for a limited amount of time. All that means is a limited amount of time. It's a half of a seven. Seven would be for eternity, but for three and a half years simply means His power is limited. But I want you to notice the verbs in verse 5. He was given. Do you see that? He was given. See that twice? All right, a mouth was given, authority was given. These are what we call passive verbs. Which means He doesn't have this power uh, As part of his character and part of his makeup, this is delegated authority that he has given. Delegated power that he's given. Who gives him that power? It's the big question. Who Who gives the emperor and the empire the power? Well, the verb given is a word that only, only is related in the New Testament to God. So, although Satan's the power behind the throne, guess what? Who's the ultimate power? God. Nothing can happen that God doesn't allow. pastor's been talking about some of these things in Sunday morning worship. And so, there's a sense in which God is allowing the empire to exist for a certain period of time. He has a purpose for that empire. One of the purposes of the Roman Empire was that Jesus would be put to death. Who do you think was behind the death of Jesus? I will say God? The devil? The Roman Empire? The Pharisee? <laughs> Pharisee yeah. See, it gets very complicated. There's a very a lot of multiple layers here. But uh, ultimately, the ultimate power behind everything is what? God. Yeah. So we see God is behind all that. So I think probably this is a reference to God when know, maybe Satan gives him the power, but God is using the devil. Martin Luther said, we must never forget. The devil's God's devil. The devil's God's devil. The devil is not an independent agent. Did you know that? He doesn't negotiate deals. You know, so I'm an independent agent. No, he works for God. Hard for us to imagine that or understand it. And I can't. I can't understand it. I wish I could. If I could understand, I'd try to explain it. I can't. But God even uses the devil. Did He use the devil? To cause affliction on Job and his family? Could the devil do it without God saying, go ahead? No. So, who is behind Job's affliction? The devil or God? (laughs) Yes, that's the answer. (laughs) Both of them were behind. God is ultimately behind it. I don't understand. That's what I don't understand. And I can't understand that. But anyway, look what he does with the authority that he has. Look at verse 6. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God. You mean God gave him a mouth to blaspheme? Yeah, he's giving you a mouth and you blaspheme God. Yeah. Oh. He opened his mouth and he blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name, that's God's character. His tabernacle, that's where God's presence is. And those who dwell in heaven, which either are the saints or the angels. And so he uses this authority and power that he has against God and it was granted him in verse 7 again allowed by God to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation and so the Roman Empire and the emperor controls the entire known world and that is God allowing that to happen so how could God give the empire, grant the empire to make war against the saints and overcome them? Did he give the empire the power to make war against his son and overcome him? Kill him? Yes. Okay, well, that's how he does it. Now look at the result. Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, will sacrifice to him, says the Lord. Now, if the verse ended there, This would be a very depressing verse, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him. Ah, there's a caveat here. Whose names have not been written in the book of life. Of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, who will not worship Him and say He is Lord? Christians. The Christians will refuse... To bow the knee to Caesar or pledge their allegiance to the Roman Empire. Now, notice how they are described. Their names are written in the book of life. That means they have eternal life. And it's called the book of life of the Lamb Slain. Their leader has been slain. Guess what might ha- may happen to them? They might be slain. In fact, they will be slain, some of them, if they do not bow the knee. Now, notice how the lamb is slain. He says he's slain from when? From the foundation of the world. Do you see that in the end of verse 8? Slain since the time of creation. This was all in God's plan way back when the world was created. God had a plan way back when the world was created that his son would be slain. Who came up with that plan? The devil? Oh god, he used the devil. He used the Roman Empire. But notice, God's plan all along was that the son would be slain. It wasn't like some people teach. Which borders right on heresy. That God, that Jesus came and he offered the kingdom to Israel and they rejected it. So he went to plan B, let's start the church. There was no plan B. Plan A and plan Z was always he was going to die on the cross. And uh, and that was God's plan from the foundation of the world. It wasn't he offered the kingdom to Israel. Had they accepted it, guess what he would have done? This is the theory. He offers the kingdom to Israel. Had they accepted it, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross. He would have just set up the kingdom. But they rejected him, so God had to go to plan B. Slain. It's nonsense. This was God's plan from the beginning. So now he gives an exhortation. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. This is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 2. Another translation puts it this way. If anyone goes into captivity, he will go into captivity. If anyone is slain with the sword, he will be slain with the sword. In other words, one way that you can read it is, hey, this is going to happen to you. And you can expect it. You just better be ready. You can expect it. Another translation sort of indicates, well, if you try to fight Rome and you pick up the sword, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to kill you. So don't fight it. Don't fight that. Whatever it means is that bad times are coming. Now look what he says right at the end of verse 9. We can expect bad times. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This is what God expects. That when bad times come and the persecution comes and even if you're threatened with death or captivity, do not Bow the need. Just as Christ was faithful and persevered and didn't cower when they threatened him with death. So we must be the same. And guess what? If we're threatened with death and they kill us, it doesn't matter. We're written in the book of life. We're going to be resurrected. So that is the message that he has right here. Now, we may not experience such persecution as you see here in the United States in our lifetime. It could happen. But likely and probably in our lifetime it might not happen. It may happen in our children's lifetime or in our grandkids' lifetime. But it is happening today. People are being locked up, put in captivity, being put to death for their faith in Christ. And we know some of them. Some are missionaries from this very class. And their life is literally on the line, so much so that you can't even tell where they're. I they can't even tell you where they're serving because it's so dangerous. Because if the word gets out, they'll be arrested and be put to death. They're not hunting for that. But these people's lives are being threatened on a daily basis, and we know them, and they're in our class. This is why we need to be encouragers. We don't just go on with our life as if all the world is America. And everything's hunky-dory. There are brothers and sisters out there dying for their faith. And we need to be aware that it's happening right now in countries whose leaders are listening to the voice of Satan. They don't know they're Satan. They're listening to that voice. And he's the power behind the throne. And he is still on the attack. He's never given up. And he's trying to get a foothold here, too. And he has a foothold here. It's just that it hasn't reached a tipping point where all the Christians are being persecuted. But that is happening in other parts of the world. And therefore, we know these people, and even if you didn't know them, you know that brothers and sisters are being persecuted and put to death for Christ in other parts of the world. And therefore, we need to be encouraging them and we need to be praying for them doing everything that we can do to help these brothers and sisters remain faithful and persevere in the faith. Next week, we pick up on verse 11, which is the beast who comes from the earth. Pray. Father, I thank you for this uh, word, these symbols that we see. We try to make sense of symbols, which is not so easy. And we think of many teachers that have this all down, they've, they've got it all figured out. And they can tell you what the big toe of the left foot means. On the Antichrist. And Lord. This book has been a mystery for 2,000 years. And we can't figure it out. All we can do is find the, the big picture. We know there's one major lesson in this book. Christians must persevere no matter what. Oh Lord, help us to learn that lesson. Put it into practice. And pray for those who are being persecuted in other parts of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.